2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. very much. Thank you very much, Bakers. Church family, you may be seated. Poppy and Nora, very well done. I think, uh, I hope the Shaw boys are taking notes, uh, should they ever be called upon. Well, we spend a third of our life at what we casually call work or our job. You say, when you look at it that way, you just think whatever we're promised, you know, 70 or 80 years if by strength, as the psalm says, Psalm 90, 70 or 80 years if by strength, and a third of our life is going to be devoted to work, we must, as Christ followers, have some kind of theology of the workplace. Are there any guidelines? Do we just kind of leave God on the sidelines when it comes to this part of our life. Well, I hope not, but rather our privilege today where our passage will take us is to really bring the Lord to bear on our work. Now, seeing that we spend so much time uh, at work, and I should say before we go any further, maybe you're in a category of person here today. You're already, you see the title, you've heard the introduction, you say, well, I don't really have a job that it's a traditional job. You know, I'm a student or I'm a retiree. I would just encourage you to say, no matter where you're at in life, no matter what position you have, that you're going to be influenced by the marketplace. You have kids who are entering the marketplace. You have loved ones who are in the marketplace. You're married to somebody in the marketplace. You want to enter the marketplace. That this is uh, such a dominant arena, a dominant sphere of what it means to be human, that we must be articulate and thoughtful and, above all, biblical on what it means to, to be Christians in the workplace. Now, seeing that we spend so much time at work, um, it's interesting that we develop so many unhealthy habits 
in these categories, isn't it? If you think about it, I mean, some of us, I, 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 rarely a week goes by where I'm not listening to some radio program, and the radio announcer, you know, depending when I'm in there, he just, he just marks the days until you get to Friday at 5 o'clock. Um, you know, thank goodness it's Friday, you know, Friday afternoon at 1, it's kind of like only four more hours to go, people, you know, just kind of slug it out, uh, that we have slogans, that it's as if, on the one hand, a lot of Americans have such an unhealthy relationship with their work that it is a necessary evil, you plow through, you put in the time, and you just got to get through it. Along those lines, I recently, in the last couple of years, learned the, the phrase, the Sunday scaries, you know, about the Sunday scaries. You know, it's Sunday afternoon, about five o'clock, the sun's going down. You're like, oh my goodness, I got to go back to that place tomorrow. Oh, it's terrible, isn't it? Say that kind of mentality, say it's an unhealthy relationship towards work. Others, and, and probably maybe more in our congregation, that we have to be careful not to overwork and turn our work into an idol, that it's the arena where we best succeed that we need not do so well in our interpersonal relationships, but when I get in there, when I get into the stuff that I really know well, I mean, this is really my wheelhouse, and by all means, as I kind of can, you know, hit the gas, that I can be very successful, and actually my work can become a means to create um, a more comfortable lifestyle, and in that sense, work can become an idol. Uh, that it takes too much of our time, or so much of our time. You know, most of us, most of the people in our congregation who, who work full-time, if I really get to know and I sit down with them, near the top of their list of, of uh, what could we say, kind of personal, pro there, there's some kind of work-life balance. And again, in a congregation like ours, that makes sense. Many of us have jobs that these are not, um, you know, casual jobs. Like they're, they're jobs where you, gotta, you have to think a lot. You're overseeing a lot of people. The consequences are severe. Um, you know, you're, you're here to say, well, I've got, I've got to learn how to do that well and balance that with my family. And getting that part right is really hard. For others of us, that we kind of spill off into the opposite. And it's not overwork, but it would be laziness. If you know, um, you know, quiet quitting, do you know this saying, quiet quitting? There's a ton of articles on this. You just Google, you know, you have Wall Street Journal on quiet quitting. So just what it sounds like. Quiet quitting is you go to work, uh, your body's kind of there in front of the screen, but you're really not engaged. You're just kind of wasting time. You know, you're playing games. And the, the numbers on that are just staggering. We say like 50% less productivity in America because of quiet quitting, that we're going in but we're just behaving with laziness. Is your place of work a, a place of fear for you? You know, you go in and say, well, I might, you know, if I don't do exactly what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to get fired and then I'm going to lose my identity and, and it's all going to, you know, the, the whole the sweater is going to become unraveled, place of a potential failure. I think you get the point. Say, work, we spend a lot of time thinking about our jobs, our work. It really influences us, our loved ones, and we can develop so many unhealthy parameters and views around the workplace. Now, an added wrinkle for us. If you're a Christian, here's the added wrinkle, and it's getting, it's getting messier. You read in your Bible, you say, well, wait, I'm not to, you know, kind of shelf this Jesus stuff. I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's an all-the-time thing. Um, it's not, you don't, you don't push him out between 8 and 5.30. So you see this chart. Say, I'm to represent Jesus all the time. And you find yourself in a workplace that is more and more unfriendly to the kind of values that, um, well, that Jesus would support. 
You say, how in the world do I bring these two worlds together? My, my faith in Jesus and what I'm required to do in the marketplace. So much so, young clergymen are being encouraged that you have to develop in your folks a, a theology of getting fired uh, for the first time. Say, so, well, is, is your faith really going to cost you in that way? So there's all kinds of knots and difficulties when it comes to uh, how to be a Christian and how to work and what work means. Now, before we get to our text, two preface comments, one out of the interest of Christmas and one out of my interest in church history, Pastor Caleb. Um, Advent, the celebration of God sending forth his son, who's eternally existed with him, the eternally existent second person of the Trinity has come down in the form taken on a full human nature to live among his creatures. That this, in many ways, in, in a lot of ways, it dignifies, it does lots of things, the incarnation, but it dignifies what we would call mundane or routine human existence. You ever think about that? Say, why doesn't God, and a few times in Scripture kind of hints at, why doesn't God just throw it all out and start again? You know, these humans, they're so stubborn I've given them so many things. I've endowed them with so many gifts. I've written my name on their hearts. I've given them nature. I've given them consciences. They've still rebelled against me. I'm just going to chuck it all out and make some kind of new creature. God doesn't do that. He sends his son to become one of us. And in that great line in Hebrews, right, identifying with us in every way. Now, the incarnation, you think about the son of God taking on flesh. Between the age of two, we get a glimpse of Jesus when he's a toddler, here, toddler. And except for one episode in Luke's gospel when he's 12, when he's in the temple debating. So you got one little episode when he's 12 years old, but from the age of two until what we would call his public ministry at age 30. That's 28 years, long time. 28 years, really would like to know what Jesus would... We know really one thing about that stretch of time. Jesus worked with his hands. It's the one detail we're given. He worked at the carpenter's bench. He had a kind of apprenticeship as a carpenter, right? Or maybe some would say that we're a stonemason. He worked with his hands. Now, if this does not dignify every secular profession, I don't know what does. So you think of our room today. We got all kinds of jobs, all kinds of work. So some of you know, Financial planners and teachers and stay-at-home moms got all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. Say, does God care about what I'm doing? You know, I'm just here doing this kind of middle management thing, or I'm just here managing, you know, typing out this code. Yes. How do you know? Because Jesus, the Son of God, spent the majority of his life at the carpenter's bench bringing dignity to the mundane activity of what we would call work. Your work matters to God. The incarnation, Christmas time, declares it so. Now, secondly, a point from church history. In the medieval church, as the church would lose its way for a host of reasons that we don't have time to explore today, but one thing that happened is, uh, you know, by the, up on the eve of the Reformation, that really the priest and the people, there was a great chasm between them. So, so you got all the people down there, and the priest would be up on the altar, which is a holy place, the altar. And so, you know, there's all the ornamentation up here. And say, so you're down there. Priest is up here. And the priest was a special holy man. 
that he could absolve you of your sins, uh, that he was uh, special, the way that he was to you know, not get married, have a family, those kind of, everything about this, say the priest was, was other, and we're, we're down here, and we're dependent upon that priest to get right with God. Say, so, well, what happens? Well, people start reading their Bible, namely Martin Luther starts reading his Bible, and one of the things that, or at least tells everybody what the Bible says, and he reads passages like Exodus 19.6, where God's calling a people to himself, and we call it Israel. And he says, Israel, you're to be a holy people, a priesthood, a royal priesthood. Say, all of Israel is a priesthood? And then he kept, you know, reading, and he reads 1 Peter 2.9, and 1 Peter 2.9 quotes Exodus 19.6. It says, well, the church... All those who trust in Jesus are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And it says, Luther says, well, it looks to me like every Christian is a priest. This we call the priesthood of all believers. And in a marvelous piece of theology, one of his great 1520 treatises, he pens off, addressed to the, the Christian nobility of a German nation, and he pens it off. And what he says is, ladies and gentlemen, if you've surrendered to Jesus and received the spirit of God, you're a priest. And you're responsible for building up other Christians in the faith. And you yourselves are just as much a mediator, that is a, a channel of pointing people to Jesus as the so-called professional clergyman. In a way, what he's saying is that the divide between clergy and non-clergy uh, we've got to be very careful with that, that all of us are priests, no matter what your job is going to be. We are all responsible for representing King Jesus in our sphere. So those before you, let's turn our attention to our passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 begins with a prayer. You say, Paul praying that the word would go forth, that he would be protected. And then in verse 6, he addresses a problem in Thessalonica that some, a subset of the Thessalonican church has stopped working. Some would say because some, they thought that the day of the Lord had already come. So you could imagine, say, well, if the end's already come, I'm not going to put in the effort here. And we could call this, my English ESV has the heading, warning against idleness. I, I actually prefer, I think what this is, is it's a defense of hard work. It's a defense of hard work. So that's where we'll begin at point number one, or heading number one, as Paul would talk to them, is that work is a prelapsarian good. Now, I use that fancy theological term, but what it, what it means is that work is a created good of God prior to the fall. If you ever, you know, go back, read the opening pages of the Bible, you get to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. And if you really think about this, it's not how a lot of people think about this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Wait a second. Before the fall, God made Adam to work the land to keep it and to procure the goods that come from it. Say, so yes, that's exactly the claim that work, as we would call it, having a task to do is a part of God's good creation. Now, does work have its hardships it does. I'm not denying that. Say, I know there are politics in the workplace. There are all kinds of ethical issues at times. There are jobs you have to do that you don't want to do. Say, well, that is a result of the fall. But work in and of itself 
contributing to a task, doing something with your hands, being in the image of a creator that we too can create, that we too can make a difference in God's cosmos is a part of his good plan. And I think this is why, again in verse 6, why Paul appeals, say this is weighty words. He calls upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, say Jesus would fully approve of what I'm about to tell you now. That he brings the, the weight of the Savior's name to say this is a serious thing that we need to continue to work and not embrace idleness. Likewise, you'll notice that little word again in verse 6, right? It's not in accord with tradition. He's telling the Thessalonians, you know this. I've preached this from the beginning. In all the millennia of our faith, that is the Hebrew faith, you go back. If you're a person of the book, nowhere can you get out of it that we're to be lazy or idle. That to be a person of faith is to read Genesis 2.15, to see that work is a good, to understand that we're made in the image of God, who's a creator, who wants us to do things, to use our faculties to make an impact. That's part of what it means. Furthermore, back to church history. If you take even a secular history course, kind of the art, you know, Western Civ, if hopefully we're still teaching that. Western Civ. You're going to come to this point in you know, the 1600s and it, definitely into the 1700s where you learn about something called the Protestant work ethic. It's a technical term, Protestant work ethic. And the thesis, which is a compelling one, that coming out of the Reformation, when people started reading their Bibles, particularly those in the Reformed Calvinistic branch of our faith, that they found just what we're talking about, that work is good, that you can contribute, that you can, in fact, create wealth, and that this can be passed on as a blessing to others is what is called the Protestant work ethic, and dare I say, is a great part of why America has become the great nation that it is, because of its Protestant roots and because of its work ethic. Now, to demonstrate this point, and I hope this isn't gratuitous, I've uh, put, I'm going to put the Westminster Confession on uh, the screen for us. We won't read this aloud, but I'm just illustrating this to you, that the Westminster Confession is a part of a series of documents from the 1640s, as they coming out of the Reformation. And what it was, uh, uh, the, the pastors and theologians said, we really need to systematize what it means uh, to be a Christian. And if you read this, I want you to see how rich it is and the amazing claims um, of, of, um, uh, on this matter of work. So it's in the context of what does the Eighth Commandment require. The Eighth Commandment is thou shalt not steal, but I'll read this to you. Okay, here we go. The Eighth Commandment requires us to act truthfully, faithfully, and justly in our contractual and business relationships with our fellow human beings so that we give to all what they deserve. We are to make restitution for anything we have unlawfully acquired from its rightful owner, we should give and lend freely according to our ability and to the needs of others. We must moderate our judgment, will, and inclinations about worldly goods. Paul, if we can just pause it there. Think about that claim alone. We must moderate our own judgment about the place of material goods in our world. Say, so that's really good advice. Am I thinking not so much do I own my stuff or does my stuff own me? What are my judgments of it? What does God want of it? Okay, next, we must exercise prudence. We'll come back to that word. We must exercise prudence in the acquisition, maintenance, use, and disposition of the things that we need and are appropriate to sustain us humanly 
and that match our condition of life. So what do you think about that? So here's America. We got, we're up to consumer debt. We're buried in consumer debt. What does that allow us to do? It allows us to adopt a lifestyle that we really can't afford. You say, the Westminster divines would say, you're, you're outside of Christian boundaries here. Christian boundaries is about assessing what God has entrusted to you and living content lives within those boundaries. We should find something lawful to do in life and work hard at it. We should be frugal, that is, we're never wasteful. And we should avoid unnecessary lawsuits and should not become liable to putting up security for others or by similar commitments. Finally, we must do our best by all just and lawful means to acquire, preserve, and increase our own and others' money and possessions. Very interesting. Is it a Christian thing to do to strive to make more money and increase wealth? It is. Can wealth be increased? It can, through free exchange. And so this, I submit to you again, is a test case, an encapsulation of a kind of healthy, biblical view of the marketplace. We work hard. We're above board. We live content lives. We don't, we're not extravagant. But yes, we do look to increase wealth so that we may bless others. Now, one more point on this. Work is a prelapsarian Christian good. I want us to think about how people use the word calling. I'm always interested. I have lots of atheistic friends from my graduate school days. And well, you know, they'll throw away a comment. They'll say, well, I just, I'm not sure this is my calling. To which my first question is, who's calling you? I don't understand if you're a materialist how you can talk about a calling. See, calling comes right out of the Latin word, the Latin verb uh, vocare, where we get vocal and where we get the word vocation. So sometimes we use those interchangeably, like my work is my vocation. And what I'm driving at is to say, I think for a Christ follower, as you go through this life with your experiences, as you're behaving diligently, as you're listening to the other faithful who know you well, and you find yourself in, in a job to say, this, precise, this is my vocation, and it is at the moment my calling to serve the people who God's entrusted me with here. Where in Scripture we get the idea that our job should be a place where there are no aggravations whatsoever, that I'm never gonna have to do a single thing that I, I don't wanna do. The second that my job gets too hard, I somehow am not in my calling. You say, I really, that, that is not a biblical view. A biblical view is saying, I'm following Jesus. I'm on mission with him. I'm involved in the life of the brothers and sisters in my church that I found myself serving in this particular job. It may not be the most glamorous or most exciting God, but it is my calling. It is the sphere to which God has put me and placed me that I might be a representative of Jesus to the people among me. See, that's your calling and your vocation. Not sure about dream jobs. Now, one other thing to notice here as we march on, how many times in 2 Thessalonians 3 between verses 6 and 15, I would say Paul lays out the balance between hard work and remuneration. Hard work and remuneration. So take a look at verse 8. He just says, you know, we worked hard among you. We were never idle, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. The implication is he worked hard, and he went to the market in the local Thessalonian Main Street, and he bought the bread. He worked, there's remuneration, and he bought things. What about verse 10? You see that almost proverbial saying there, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
We work so that we might eat. There's work and there's remuneration. Once again, verse 12, we're to work quietly to earn our own living. We work and there's remuneration. What I submit to you, if you've been tracking so far, is that since work is a prelapsarian good, that there is something inbuilt in human nature where we're to feel the benefit of our productivity. That as we put in the input of our job, whatever it might be, is as we're putting something into the system through hard work, what God's called us to do, that it's actually good then to have that response in how, that it, how it's returned that we can participate in the marketplace. It's built in to how we operate. Now, if I may, I debated whether or not to say this during the week, um, just thinking whether it's necessary. I decided I'm going to say it. Uh, last last uh, hour, no, no, I haven't checked my email yet. So, uh, <laughs> but here's here's the point, and I want to be careful. This is kind of I want to see, you know how Paul says, well, you know, this is this is me and not the Lord, even though that's all the Bible. This is when I, this is Austin, okay, and no one else. Just I want you to think about this this week, and I'm careful not to commit what I would call an anachronism. What's an anachronism is when you take two historical things that are you know, separate and there's no causality and you make them causal so, or connect them. So I, I'm not, I don't want to commit anachronism here, but this is, this is the point. People will say to me, Shaw, are you a capitalist? How can you be a Christian and a capitalist? And I say, I am a glad capitalist. The reason I am a glad capitalist, because I think that is the best system available, right? What did Churchill say? It's the worst system except for all the others. Um, so it's the best system we have that allows humans to, to participate in what I find to be something inbuilt into our nature to work hard and to have remuneration through private ownership, free exchange, and wealth creation. Socialism, by definition, is confiscatory. It says, well, here's the input that whatever the output is, is confiscated, really, and then redistributed by a central government. You say, I think that that undercuts human nature. In my own view, why I think socialism will never truly succeed is because it's fighting, like a lot of other things now, it's fighting against human nature. So please don't this week go say, well, Shaw says 2 Thessalonians 3 is, is Paul laying out you know, the wealth of nations, Adam Smith. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I see in 2 Thessalonians 3 and elsewhere in scripture, something in human nature where we're to work hard in God's creation, doing something that is lawful and good, and that we're to have the, the reward, if you will, from that hard work. And the system that best allows us to do this is the one that we know under the heading of capitalism. You say, well, what about all the... What about all the rapacious activity in capitalism? What, what kind of Christian are Any human system that is not undergirded by Christian virtue will turn rapacious. So what we've done is we've taken all these young people, they go off to the leading business schools, all these young men and women, we send them off, we teach them to be good venture capitalists. You say, well, this is how you, know, you go make lots of money. And what we've done, remember that word in the Westminster Confession, that nasty little word, prudence, or how about temperance, or self-control, or honesty. Well, we don't go teaching the young people that because we all know that's just Christian moralism. So what we've done is we've taken the ethics, honesty, prudence, temperance, we've chucked them out the window and said, well, go make all your money. And when we do that, 
any more than you can do the same thing in democracy. The democracy, capitalism, or any system that is not undergirded by the Christian virtues will only increase and encourage our sinful nature towards selfishness and godlessness. So, friends, 2 Thessalonians 3 from verse 6 is a defense of the importance of work. Work is a prelapsarian good. It is our vocation. It is where we can contribute. Secondly, deliberate idleness has consequences. Now, look at verse 10 again, that proverbial saying, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So let's be very clear who we're talking about here with the idol. It is those who are unwilling. So I hope to this point, you're not sitting here, you say, well, you're you know, over 80 years old and you're retired and you're saying, oh man, you know, this passage coming down hard. I would say, no, I don't think this is targeting retirees. Is it targeting those who, uh, for whatever reason, have a disability who cannot work? Say, no, that is not who this is targeting. The disabilities are very real things. There are very real reasons we don't work. Retirement is a good thing. Um, how about this one? You know, I know I'll get a question. Well, what about stay-at-home moms? Uh, for three and a quarter years, I've tried to you know, say, I want to always defend um, stay-at-home moms. I think it's a wonderful job, not at the expense of working moms. Stay-at-home moms are not, are not idle. Uh, I occasionally uh, pick up a shift, and I'm like, this is far from idle. Say, no. But, um, it's talking about those, you see, who are not willing to work. It is the able-bodied who are sitting around Thessalonica and saying, you know what, um, you know, I can just kind of mooch. Uh, it's the indolent it is the moochers that Paul has in mind here. You say, well, why is it so serious? I mean, he says, have nothing to do with them. Um, you know, treat them as brother, but really give them a pretty start. You know, why is this so harsh? The reason why laziness and deliberate idleness is a problem is because it's a form of stealing. It is a form of violating the Eighth Commandment. If I'm saying, you know, I could work, but I'm not going to work because I know everybody else is going to do it for me, then you, in a way, are confiscating that hard-earned good in that balance of remuneration and reward that we said is part of human nature. Again, this is not to say, and this is my fear in this, this is not to say that there aren't real needs. And I think that's exactly what Paul means. Look at verse 13 after he says, so isn't the person not willing to work, let them not eat. If there's the deliberate idle, idle among you, the deliberately lazy, that's who we're saying because we're, it's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. I have to believe in that line. What he's really saying is, please don't give up really taking care of the needy because that's a very Christian thing to do. And the reason why this is such a hard sermon in our congregation is because I've prayed for the last several years, really, that those who have need would come forward. Because in a church like ours, that might be the hardest thing to do. Do you realize that? Say, what's our church? You know, where are the occupational hazards of our church? One of the hardest things to do must be in a church like ours to come and say, you know what, I'm really having trouble paying this bill. And I hope if you're there, you're not reading a sermon like this, say, well, I'm afraid to come ask for help because Pastor Shaw is going to think I'm, I'm lump me in with the idol of Thessalonica. Say, no, there are real needs. We've all been there and we must never grow weary of doing good and of helping each other out, even financially. That's what it means to be a church family. But always on guard as to what it means to work hard as unto the, unto the Lord, never being quiet quitters. 
One more word on this. Have a look at uh, verse 11 again. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, then a play on words in the Greek and in English, not busy at work, but busy bodies, you see. When we don't devote our energies into something productive, we inevitably devote those energies into something unproductive or worse yet, malicious. Have you seen the number of titles um, on young men in our society? One example would be Reeves of boys and men. Reeves, I think, is a man of the left. I have no reason to believe he's a Christian at the Brookings Institution. Um, it's a book such as, say, well, we've told young men that working with their hands is not a good thing to do. Uh, we've told them, labeled them with all kinds of labels. We've said that they're interchangeable parts, that men and women are the same thing. And what we have, then, is a culture of young men who, who, who play video games and who stay living off their parents. And it is a major social crisis. It has to do with a matter of idleness, as the Bible would have it. So two moves we've made so far. Work is a prelapsarian good. It's how God made us. Work hard, have reward. Live within your means. Be content. Create wealth. Secondly, that idleness, deliberate laziness, is never a Christian good. It will hurt the church family. It will hurt your church family. That's not to say there aren't real needs, and we as a church are committed to taking care of real needs, never with the kind of snobbishness, I pray. So how about a few then practical thoughts as we close out uh, the, the sermon here. Practical thoughts for Christians in the workplace. Where does this leave us? I think, notice Paul, he toiled and labored among the Thessalonians. Uh, point number one is we want to perform our work with effort and excellence. Say, so what do you think it's like, you know, January 9th, I said we're going to make an invitation to this event. You say, well, if you're at your job and everybody knows that you're a quiet quitter, and you really don't do your job, and you make a lot of mistakes, and you're really, your mind's not there, and then you say, hey, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, you think that's a good reflection on your king? We Christians, we work hard. We work with effort. We do our jobs with excellence, as unto the Lord, Colossians 3 and verse 23. And I know many of you do. I know many of you do your jobs with excellence. Keep up the good work. Secondly, and I've learned this from Mr. Beckett, John Beckett and his wonderful little book, Loving Monday, that I went back and revisited in this sequel, Mastering Monday, well worth picking up both, Northeast Ohio's own, the Beckett Corporation, Mr. Beckett, right? Remember, you're in the people business, the extreme value of the individual. Whatever job you have, you say, well, I just, you know, again, I'm typing code, or what does this have to do? Inevitably, you will run into other people, you will interface with other people, you'll have colleagues, whatever sphere you're in, you say, I'm always in the people business. And when you're in the people business, you can have an eternal impact. You know how many people are in this place at this very hour because a Christian in their workplace worked hard and had the courage to walk over and say, I'm a Christian, would you like to read the Bible together? The biggest mission field is the marketplace. You're the missionaries. I'm not the missionary. I'm on the God squad. Do you think anybody besides you trust me? No. Say, I'm a, one of those guys. You know, they're operating in the medieval. You know, Shaw, the holy man over there, 35295. Say, no, you're the missionaries. You're in the, you're in the marketplace. There's lots of unsafe people. You're in the people business. It's your first job. Thirdly, you can shape the culture through kindness and lots of other things. You might say, well, my 
culture of my work is so toxic. Yeah, but you can be kind. You can use language in the language you don't use. You can treat people with dignity and generosity and be high-minded and be attentive. And that's not lost on people. They'll remember. Fourthly, a twice-repeated line by Paul. I'll go back to verse 12. Work quietly and earn your own living. To me there, say, do your job with diligence. Make ends meet. Be on guard against greed. And this is a very happy life. I was given a note hanging out with the Brother Bob Zimmerer this week, and he passed this along. In 1922, Einstein was staying at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, and the bellhop was gathering his bags, and so Einstein goes up to his room, and he grabs some of the Imperial Hotel stationery, and he etches a little note in German for the bellhop. You ready? A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. I don't think Einstein was a Christian, but I say this is good Christian principles. A calm and modest life brings more happiness than the pursuit of success combined with constant restlessness. That may we do our calling, whatever it is. May we serve the people whom God's entrusted to us. May we create wealth and work hard and live content lives in this crazy world. Say, so that's a very good way forward for us. So Christian, you got a little extra time off over the holidays. So I hope you're not dreading January. Say, so, oh, when January comes, back to work again. Say, no, that's your mission field. And you're the best hope your colleagues have of seeing Jesus and knowing him and being in eternity. And if you're a non-Christian today, and your life is your identity, or your life is a drudgery, and even deep down you say, I'm just not going to make it. Well, great news. The Lord Jesus came for you, that you can turn to him and trust him, as every member of this church has done. So those things before you, I'm going to pray. The gentlemen of the church will uh, stand up that we're going to do the Lord's Supper, so I'll pray and then give instructions, okay? Gracious Father, thank you for sending forth Jesus into our world to dignify what we would call mundane routine life, that we wake up, we eat, we go to work, we look after our affairs, come back, eat again, rest, repeat. Lord, what's this have to do with anything? Say, well, everything that you dignified it for us to say, this is what it means to to represent you. Help us to not see what we do day in and day out as some kind of waste or something to shelve, but rather the very means by which we can best live as Christians. And so I pray for each one here, Lord, that you would give us a renewed sense of purpose in our workplace, that we would be excited to serve those whom you called us to serve, that we would see what real Christian calling is, and that as a church, that we would be those who are devoted firstly to you, but also to the task that you've called us to, for Christ's sake. Amen.